before you now. We are so thankful. Those of us who have repented and believed and are called according to your purpose, Lord, we are believers and we can sing with all of our hearts, this is my story, this is my song. I know the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that if uh, there is someone within the sound of my voice that cannot say, I don't understand what you're talking about, about this being my story. Lord, I pray today could be their day of salvation. Lord, we just ask you to um, guide us and to guide our worship today as we worship you in spirit and in truth. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. This is Miss Violet Ward, the daughter of Eric and Liz Ward. And uh, we keep coming back to the scripture where it says that because of Eunice and Lois's influence upon young Timothy that the scriptures made him wise unto salvation. We know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. And Miss Violet stands here today to let you know that she's trusted Jesus as her Lord. Violet, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Yes. Amen. I like resolute answers. Amen. We praise the Lord Jesus for that. Uh, kids, would you all stand in their honor and any family members that are here? All right. It's vital upon your profession of faith, trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's my privilege to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, 
Son, and the Holy Spirit. For we are buried with Christ through baptism. We are raised to walk in newness of life. Amen, amen. All right. If uh, you would grab the little... Uh, card looks like uh, this connection card we would love for you to fill that out especially if you're with us for the first or second time we'd love to um, just be able to reach out to you and say thank you for worshiping with us today and then the rest of us uh, obviously there's a, a prayer card back there we'll be faithful to pray for any of those requests so you can put those in the offering plate okay by the way uh, aren't you guys thrilled every time we have a, a child baptism all their buddies come to witness because that's what a baptism is. It's a, it's a witness, right? A testimony that says, I, I was uh, in my old nature, and I was buried to that old nature and raised to a new nature in Christ. And, and these guys get to witness that every time their buddies do that. So praise the Lord for you guys being here today. If you didn't know, that's why they come in and out. That's why. Okay? Um, so as Brother Philip continues his message on... Um, the, the family, about husbands and wives. Uh, he said early on, I think a couple weeks ago, that we've got to remember that this is, the, 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 this is all about the, the Christian believer being submissive first to Christ, and then we can have that love and respect between husband and wife that we, that we need. And only then can we do that. We can try it in our own human power. Ain't going to happen. Amen? But we can do it through Christ. And so let's focus on our relationship with Christ today in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my soul. His sword is
Sing it with conviction. Yeah. 
Let me just say, it is such an honor to lead y'all in worship. I don't know if you noticed, um, I, I, I just added two measures to the song that had nothing to do with anything, and, and they just said, well, you know, when David finds his place, we'll just be right with him. <laughs> and uh, God, God bless uh, our orchestra, our choir, our praise team, tech, everybody who helps to, for worship here. We just praise the Lord for, for their uh, faithfulness, and I just, I can't imagine a better thing to be here. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you and uh, give you praise for your guidance and your leadership in our lives. Lord, as we've strived today to think about keeping you first, yes, we've, we've got to work on our marriage, yes, we've got to work on our parenthood, yes, we've got to work on so many things, but you and you alone have to be first. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that you would show us that and teach us that today. And, uh, Lord, help us that, that you would be first in our, uh, in our giving today, too. Because, Lord, we understand that anything we have, it's because of your blessing. Um, yes, have we worked hard? Yes. Uh, yes, have we tried hard? Yes. But there are others who have worked hard and tried hard and have very little. And so, Lord, it's because of your blessing. We know this. And, um, and we just want to be faithful in, in, your, in our giving today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. God and God alone, Jesus alone, Christ alone, right, is going to satisfy us. Now, there will be many other things come along in this life. Marriage, one of them, that is very satisfying, but not ultimately satisfying as Christ. Amen. So this song reminds me of that more than any other. Who can satisfy my soul like you, O oh Lord? Let's sing it together. Who can satisfy my soul like you? Who are Trust in you, Lord. 
to be me again today. <laughs> oh, the context of um, our preaching about husband's role, the roles of the husband and the wife. Uh, I think about one great pastor, it was either Spurgeon or Edwards, that had somewhere in the pulpit area these words, what are you trying to do to these people? And it was a reminder as you stepped into the pulpit of the gravity of what we actually preach and what we're teaching. And so I am not standing aloof from, from what we are actually preaching together and, and learning together. But this is part two of the Spirit-Filled Wife. And we title that intentionally because it flows out of Ephesians 5.18. 
And be not drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then we're looking at these five participial phrases of result. So with an eye on my sermon and thinking about that, I picked up a book to kind of read somewhat devotionally. And I've read through most of it. It's called Devoted to God's Church by Sinclair Ferguson. And one particular chapter had the title of Christian Witness and World Mission. Okay? I'm going somewhere with this, all right? We're still in Ephesians. But just think of this for a moment. Christian Witness and World Mission. And so the point of the chapter is that when we have new life in Christ, everything changes. Not least because it gives us a new purpose for living. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So Christ calls us... To be witnesses to him. So Sinclair Ferguson says, Obedient Christians, faithful church members, are therefore by definition witnesses. We are so familiar with Christians using this term that we can forget at times that it is not a distinctly Christian word. And he goes on to say the word has a legal background. It belongs to the world of law court. And we actually... When you think about this, have an example of this in the scripture, and that's in Johannine theology. In other words, if you read the Gospel of John, what do you learn? Well, when he comes on the scene, he's actually on trial before the world. However, John will turn around and identify witnesses who know who Christ is, all the way through the book of John. So, our Lord is still on trial to a watching world, and you are the witnesses of the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ferguson notes that that's really what Peter is giving us in 1 Peter. Have you ever thought about that? We're pilgrims in this world. We're strangers passing through. We're sojourners. And then he begins to talk about civic life, how we're supposed to obey governmental authorities. He talks about personal life. He talks about how you live under persecution. He talks about how you live at your job. And guess what? talks about how your, go ahead and say it, marriage is to be a witness to the world. Now, what is our normal way of trying to get gospel conversations started? Let's just send out a questionnaire to the lost world and find out what they say about certain things and thus we can get a platform to maybe have a gospel conversation. Well, I want to remind, that's not bad in and of itself, but that's not Peter's assumption. Here's Peter's assumption. The watching world will ask you to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Folks, your marriage ought to bring forth questions from a lost world. Why do you live like you do? You husbands, why do you serve like you do? You wives, why do you submit unto to godly leadership like that. Why does your home look so different from the homes of this world? It's because Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. So that's another perspective as we continue to go through this text of Scripture. My wife has a shirt that says, I don't have an accent, you do. <laughs> My mother-in-law really needs to wear that shirt. But, but you know what? You Missourians have an accent that we were not used to. And I want to tell you, if you're a believer, you have a different accent. If you belong to Jesus, you spell your story of your life differently than this world. 
Amen, don't we? And the world should be prompted. That's the context of 1 Peter 3.15. They ask you to give a defense. They're asking believers questions. That's Peter's assumption. We should be living so much like Christ that the world asks us about our faith. And that's even true when it comes to your marriage. That helps us stand on the horizon and precipice of our marriages and look over it to the big picture. Which is a vision of the glory of God and Christ and his church. And I've said that to you from day one. You've got to keep that focus. It's not first God existing to magnify your marriage. No. Your marriage exists to magnify the glory of God. And we have to keep that focus. Even when it comes to the gospel. So we need to find ways of expressing and communicating that faith to this world. And the best way to do that is to change life. The best way to do that is someone who's fully devoted to Christ. Someone who has deep assurance and real joy so it marks our marriages. So... I want you to embrace your responsibilities with hope and joy. And Jesus helps us do that. And then secondly, we talked about embracing that focus upon the glory of God in our marriages. So last week, we began, wives, submit to your husbands. No one threw a tomato at me. Although I will say this, we have people who are hurting. And I'm not oblivious to that. Just because I'm expositing to you what this text says, and it means what it says and says what it means. I'm not standing off again aloof to the fact that there are real marital issues, even with the people I'm speaking to. I get that, okay? So, with that being said, remember last week? Uh, do we have those in order again? I'm not sure we do, but remember the first one was, yes, wives to submit to their own husbands, not to someone else's, but your own and then wives are to submit, or men in general, right? And then wives are to submit as to the Lord. We have four more. Remember, you, you're saying, Pastor, you said there were only 40 words to the ladies and 115 to the men, but this is taking a long time for the 40 words. I get it. So in this sermon, we're building on wives, submit to your husbands, and we're building on three through six, but we've numbered them in your bulletin, just one, two, three, four. Ready? So wives are to submit because, listen to this, again, when you see the word for, he's, it, is, it is actually what's called causal. He's going to give you causation of why you are to submit. Does that, that make sense? He's going to give you the grounds for why you are to submit. And here's the first one. You submit because the husband is the head of the wife. Now, the first ground we call male Headship or husband's headship. This construction, again, is causal. It's a causal clause. A wife should submit to her husband because the husband is the head of the wife. And it refers to her husband. Can you guys and gals imagine the kind of ink that has been spilt upon this word kephele? Head? Because, again, the world wants to take the word head. Or, let me be more specific, even evangelical feminists that are in churches, want to take the word head and make it merely mean source. That the husband is the source of the wife, like thinking back that a part of Adam was taken out and the lady was formed, the woman was formed, Eve. However, the fact of the matter is, the word means authority. 
That's what it means. You can't take that out. If you do a Greek study of the usages of the word head, 99.4% of the time the word head means one in authority. In the sense of functional authority. Not inferiority, not uh, inequality, but functionality of rank. The husband is the head of the wife. So again, it's a genitive of subordination, meaning he's the head over his wife. You can't make the Greek mean anything different from that, okay? It is he is head over the wife. Now, before you men jump up with a crescendo of amens, and you're excited about the fact that when you get home, you're going to say, I'm about to take care of business. And we're going to do it exactly the way I say we do it, and I'm in charge. But I know some of you, before you would ever say that, you're pausing. Because you know you got to go home. <laughs> and you're worried about what your wife may say to you if you start that crescendo of amens in here. Okay? So let me remind you that your headship, described in this text, is for you to look at the headship of Christ. Okay? His authority, Christ-like authority, Christ-like leadership, Christ-like headship. Here's a definition for you. It is taking the primary responsibility for servant leadership, protection, and provision in your family. So to be the head of the family doesn't mean that you have the inherent royal right to bark out your commands for your wife to get you the paper or to fill your tea glass. Now, folks, I grew up in the South, and I can't tell you how many times I heard the ice rattling in the glass. And they expected the wife to come and get that tea glass. and fill. I'm not kidding with you. I'm not. I'm serious, right? Or how about, hun, grab my slippers out of that closet. And usually there's not, please, honey, as you're passing through there, would you mind picking up my slippers? That way I don't have to make a trip. No. It does mean that you have the inherent responsibility for being the servant leader of your home and to protect and provide for that home materially and spiritually. Now, I know this doesn't sound too culturally hip or woke to say that the husband is the head of the wife, but folks, this is a creation ordinance. God designed this. No matter what the world says to you or or Christians who say that headship is obsolete or it doesn't exist, I want to remind you that headship is not a result of the fall. And that's where they go very fast on this. They say, well, you know, you see, it was not until what happened in the fall happened that we had these thorns and the flu and men got in charge. We've got Roundup for the thorns. We've got Vaccines for the virus. Now we need to stamp out this male headship. Get it out of here. Nothing went wrong until you men got in charge. Right? That's kind of the world's attitude. And it's depicted all on the TV shows. So unfortunate and anti-God. It's against his creation order. Did you know the headship was a part of the created order? It is. In fact, headship and submission is a part of God's good creation. 
Did the fall negatively impact the authority and submission structure at creation? The way it was, you better believe it. We talked about that of uh, Genesis 3.16. There was conflict and confusion. But headship reigned and submission existed in Genesis 1 and 2. It doesn't just spring out of the ground in chapter 3. And you say, well, pastor, since the fall so negatively impacted headship and submission, let's just do away with it altogether. Well, folks, I don't know what you found, but God is not in the habit of taking that which he has created and seeing it marred and then destroying it. Our God redeems it. Are you listening? And this is where we are in Ephesians chapter 5. God's pattern is to redeem that which has been broken or that which has fallen. He redeems our relationships. Now, in redemption and headship, it actually ends up in this redemption receiving the fullest expression that could possibly be given, even greater than the Garden of Eden. When you see the full expression of the redeemed marital relationship between a husband and the wife, that's in the fullest sense of it. So there's hope for us, right? For the wife and for the husband. It means that God is for our marriages in a way that's so much bigger than just our temporary happiness. All right, keep moving. Notice the next phrase. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself, its savior. Although headship is rooted in creation, we know that, right? Just read the book of Genesis. What is Paul's appeal for headship? Well, it's Christ's relationship to the church. And I thought about this a lot, and if you stop and think about this, what is reflected in creation is actually a mirror image of Christ and his church. He's about redeeming it, bringing back primal dignity to not only his creation, which is yearning and groaning for the full revelation of the glory of God, right? Romans 8. But not only that, but what does Paul mean when he says Christ is the head of the church? Again, it's the word kephele, and it's not, again, if you think uh, head only means source, it breaks down pretty fast when you come here to Christ being the head of the church. Does it mean he's just the source of the church? No, not at all. He is the head. He, he is head, listen, over all things and his church. So when we say he's head of the church, he has authority over it. It means that he's the leader, and he's the one whose will is determinative for the life of the church. There's only one head of the church, folks. And last time I checked, he doesn't call a council of pastors like me to figure out what decisions we ought to make. He alone is the head of the church. Now, how does he model his authority and his leadership? The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the very leadership that Christ exemplified, folks, the very leadership that he embodied was a servant leader. He tells his bride, the church, that he is here to lead by serving her. Now, folks, could you imagine the changes in our marriages if husbands got off the soapbox of I'm in charge and that I make the decisions around here. Nothing's going to get past me. And, and instead, we say I'm here to lead. And I have ultimate responsibility for this household. And I'm going to leave it in a way. I'm going to execute that responsibility for this family by being its greatest servant. 
I know that's novel to some of you guys, but that's Bible. It's what the Word of God says. His service is, by the way, is there any indignity in the service of Christ to the church? No, ma'am. No, sir. As a matter of fact, his service is your redemption. Without his ultimate service of giving himself on Calvary, we have no redemption. So Christ is not just the boss in that sense of authority of the church. Okay? How do I know that? When we think about authority structure and being a leader, but here's something else we need to think about. Ephesians 4, verse 15. In my Bible, I just turned left, one page. All right? Kind of like NASCAR, right? Just turn left. 4.15 says this. Stick close. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. We know he's the greatest servant. But now we see something about growth and sanctification that, that Christ alone can give us. We grow up into him who is the, see it? Say it. Head. Into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Can I borrow from John 15? He is the. He is the. We are the branches. It is only through that vital union with the vine that the sap actually flows through your life. That's not only true of the church. I'm telling you, there's an incredible unity that God is trying to get you to see between Christ and his church when it's unified. When Christ is the head, things work so much better. When we're in unity and we're submitting to, our, to the Lord Christ and following him, there is unity in the body of Christ. Stop and consider in the context of husband and wife. We must see male headship by looking at the headship of Christ. Men, you lead like Jesus led, being a servant, and do all you're supposed to do for the glory of Christ as a conduit. Listen, not an obstacle or a barrier. That's good preaching no matter who you are. You should be a conduit of these things, not an obstacle or a barrier. And maybe you've never heard this statement either, but get it, men. You should supply your wife all that she needs in, in her being obedient to God and fulfilling her calling as a woman and a wife. Shame on you if you don't. No amens, guys. I don't hear the crescendo. I know I'm being hard on you because I are one. Are you listening? The fact is, headship and submission end up being dynamically related to unity. Think about this for a moment. I hope we have to come to understand this in reference to the church. There's an explicit unity between Christ and his church. And that metaphor exists as a body in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. The head is connected to the body and they are, say it, one. We stand at the marital altar and we used to light a unity candle. Or we do sand today. Or we do ropes today. Well, the fact of the matter is, you extinguish the two and you are one in marriage. So this unity of head and body metaphor carries over to the headship and submission in a marriage. So that submission, I'm not preaching, on head, I'm not preaching to the men yet, not all the way. I'm just telling you this for ladies. 
Submission in marriage, so that submission shows the unity between the husband and the wife. In other words, we function together under one head, not as two autonomous individuals living together. And when the wife submits to her husband's leadership, there is a wonderful God-honoring glorification, a manifestation of unity, of oneness between the husband and the wife. And please don't forget that we're talking about glad, voluntary Submission. Remember, it's the middle voice. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husband. It's not husbands, subject your wives. doesn't say that. It's voluntary, glad submission. So when this takes place, there's a wonderful harmony and unity in marriage. Now let's be clear. This doesn't all depend solely on the wife's submission. There's, of course, the flip side, and we're going to get to you men soon enough, Right? When the wife does submit, there's a oneness between the husband and wife. And again, this is the same thing that exists in the eternal Godhead. Jesus came down from heaven in obedience to the will of the Father. Not to do half of what he asked. Not to do three quarters. But to fulfill all that the Father had asked him to do. And he willingly subjected himself to the Father's will. Yet he was 100% equal with the Father. And throughout Scripture, it is the Holy Spirit of God that is God, but yet He is willingly submitting Himself to both the Father and the Son. And there's no inferiority. There's absolutely no sense of inequality. There is actually beautiful harmony. So, all right, little grammar. You ready? Take a little break. Some of you, you husbands are a little tense right now, right? You said, I thought this was to the women. Okay. Notice what it says here. And is himself its savior. Wow. What does that mean? Well, it could be the sacrificial language that sets up the husband's responsibility in 525. Right? Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. It could be a window opening up to that particular statement. And that would certainly balance the lordship and headship of Christ with what's called saviorhood. In other words, he's not only the head of the church, but he's also the savior of the body. He's the one who actually redeemed the church. So it could be, so husbands remember that it is not only lordship that you need to be thinking about, but saviorhood. Now is that a possible view? Well, in the sense of washing your wife with the water of the word, which we'll get to, yes. Sacrificing for her, yes. But I'm inclined to believe that what Paul is doing by adding who is the savior of the body is he's limiting the analogy. And you say, well, how do you get that? Well, he's reminding us how Christ is different from husbands. Husbands are not saviors. Heads, yes. Saviors, no. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, the grammar. If you look at verse 24, it says now. And scholars have spent a lot of ink on this. And the question is, is this resumptive? Is he just resuming as, as it, even as Christ is the head of the church, and then he shifts to the husband's role, established by Christ's role as the head, and now he's going to talk about the way the wife's role has been established in reference to the church. Okay? It literally could be that, and I have no problem with that. The reason I'm inclined to believe that the word should be but, Allah in the Greek, is because adversative means the previous line becomes clearer. Christ's work as Savior of the body does not apply to the husband. In other words, 
There's a limit to this. You're not your wife's savior. Only Christ can save. And I'm not the only one who comes with this conclusion. There's probably ten incredible Greek scholars that believe this is adversative. In other words, verse 23, watch this. His body, he himself, its savior, but, in other words, adversative, as the church submits to Christ. So, the fact of the matter is, when we get to the savior of the body, I'm inclined to think that, yes, you have headship, but you're not your wife's savior. Only Jesus Christ saves. Okay? I know that might have got you totally confused. Come to my office and I'll help you help me. All right? All right, number two. Wives are to submit as the church submits to Christ. We, we've dealt with that connection, Allah, now or but, as the church submits to Christ. So wives are to submit as the church submits to Christ. We can go fast here. Here we move from headship rooted in creation and redemption in Christ to the church, us as a body, being subject to Jesus. In other words, this serves as a motivation for the wife to subject herself to her husband. How, do, how does the church subject itself to Christ? We live under his authority. We live under his lordship. We submit to his lordship as individuals in our lives and corporately. We have a singular focus. If you're a believer, y'all listening? Think about these words. No man can be my disciple unless he forsakes all. Right? you got to take up your cross and deny self. Take up your cross and follow him. What does that mean? Well, it means that you're a follower of Christ. And he has your central focus at hand and you submit to him. You want to fulfill his purpose, his mission. We follow him. And check this out. We love him and we do so joyfully. So as Christ... As the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands. Ready for number three? Don't wince on me. Wives are to submit in everything. Now, some are thinking at this point, if my husband were, was more like Christ, it'd be a lot easier, preacher, for me to submit. Okay? If my husband was fulfilling his role as the head, it would be easier for me to submit. If he was more like Jesus... In his, if he was more like the church in its response to Christ, then maybe it would be easier for me to submit. Well, let me warn you not to poke holes in the analogy in an effort, in an effort to show its deficiencies or how does it match up in every respect in life. Okay, that would be dangerous. He's not giving you an analogy because your husband is just like Jesus. And therefore, it is nothing more than pure bliss to submit to your husband. The analogy is that just like the church yields to the Lord in everything, so yield to your husband in everything. Submission is when the wife honors, listen, and affirms her husband's leaderships, leadership, and she helps him and affirms him and honors him in his leadership and yields to him when he makes decisions, just like the church does to Christ. John Piper says, submission is an inclination of the will to say yes to the husband's leadership and a disposition of the spirit to support his initiatives. I know what some of you women are thinking. That bozo can't make a good decision. No, you're not thinking that. Well, I know my wife may not have said that to me before, but I promise you she's probably thought about that. 
What kind of decision is he making? Now look, the text says in everything. The husband's headship and leadership. What does that mean? It extends to the totality of life. Are y'all listening? Under the word of God. It does extend to the totality of life. It's in the Greek, all things. Okay? But it's, it's in and under the word of God. You see it on our wall coming in the commons. This church is life together under the word. So when we say, or when the scripture says, in everything. Understand, it is possible within the scope of marriage. For a husband to demand of his wife to do something in direct violation to the will and word of God. And when that happens... We have to bring forth Acts 5.29. It is better to obey God than man. Amen? It is better to obey God than man. This is not a total, totally unqualified statement that you are to do absolutely everything your husband tells you. It's speaking of the totality of life and the leadership of the husband and the authority of that function. So, it's qualified by what is right and good is qualified by what is under the Word of God, what we learn from the Word. Okay? Y'all have done so good. I got one more. Let your eyes move down to verse 33. However, let each one of you love. All right, you ready? That is an imperative command. However, let each one of you love. Agapatao. Yeah, there it is. And we talk about unconditional love. Be careful there because... Philos, agape, they're often used interchangeably. However, in other words, sometimes we say agape is the God kind of love. Well, watch out, because oftentimes in Greek, you have philos used, the brotherly love of Christ loving his people. So, here's the point. That's the verb that's driving it. That's an imperative command. You husbands, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Okay, with equal force... Carrying the verb in the imperative mode. Are you ready? And let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in other words, I, I do all that to tell you that that respect carries the force of the parallel verb to love men your wife. Men, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Is that clear? That's how he gives it to us. So, is that to mean... Phobos, which is the Greek word, fear, does that mean that you are to be in terror of your husband? No, it means that there's reverential respect based on the husband's, listen to this, God-given responsibility. Again, go back to creation, go back to God, the very one who ordained this ordinance of marriage. We do so as we revere and respect the God-given position of authority that God gave the husband. So, it's in the singular, which means it's your personal responsibility, ladies. You, it's in the singular, are to respect your husband. Now, uh, many commentators also have pointed out that there's uh, a bookends of this section. In grammar, we would call it an inclusio. Okay? Y'all ready? Is everybody listening? I'm going to land the plane in just a minute. Look. 522, I'm sorry, 521, y'all see it? Submitting to one another out of, say it, reverence. All right, how does 33 end? See that the wife reveres her husband, okay? See the book ends? Scholars have pointed that out. I give you that free. That and 50 cents might get you a cup of coffee with a senior discount at McDonald's, 
All right? But that is important, okay? It is important that the author thinks it's important for us to see that it is reverential respect of mutual submission in the church. And then if you're following your God-given responsibility as a wife, then he, he bookends that with how important it is for you to respect your spouse. Can I give you an example? 1 Peter chapter 3. You got it on your phone because the pages are not turning, right? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5. What a beautiful text of Scripture. Let me start in verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold or jewelry or the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which God's, in God's sight, Ladies, do you want to be precious in God's sight? It's not meaning you can't wear makeup or jewelry. That's not what it's saying. But God looks on the heart. Right? Not on the outward appearance. Verse 5. Listen. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, watch out, calling him Lord. And you are here, you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You see how luscious this text is when you compare it to chapter 5 of Ephesians? So this is not terror fear. This is reverential respect. And when it says he called, she called him Lord, that's the Greek word sir. <laughs> not Savior, but sir. Why, why is it that way? Sometimes we read about Abraham and we say, good Lord, how in the world could anybody ever live with that kind of faith? And then we read that and we're like, why in the world did he make that decision? He fell and bumped his head, right? Have y'all read about Abraham? Do you know how Sarah submitted even when it, woof? Well, she called him Lord and she reverenced him. Through all those difficulties, she revered her husband in the sense of respect for his position. Okay. What you've learned the past two weeks is the exposition of this text. I've done the best I know how to give you what this text says. Right? It's something called authorial intent. What does that mean? The text can never mean what it never meant. And the goal is to get into the language, read, read and study the language to give you as a church what this text says. So for you ladies, those things I've given you is what this text of the Bible says. Okay? When I return from Guatemala, I leave on Thursday with 24 of us, right? I want us to talk about some of the difficulties that arise. I want to I do in the model of Acts 20, I want to shepherd your heart a little bit as your pastor. It doesn't mean I won't be preaching. You know me well enough. But I want to give you some of the things of experience in life, the difficulties that come up with, with living in marriage, marital life. Now, I don't know what your experience has been, but when I look at my 31 years of marriage, and I look at Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33, we've lived this out as smooth as glass. <laughs> I tell you that with the swagger of a neo-charismatic who has the top 10 marriage in the world. Bull. Baloney. <laughs> I've heard them talk about that. It made me sick at my stomach. I get nervous around people that are holier than thou. 
Well, I do what I'm supposed to do all the time, and Natalie does what she's supposed to do all the time, and I live in a perpetual state of unhindered marital bliss. <laughs> do y'all? Folks, it doesn't happen that way. There's a fundamental reason why people who have been married 31 years don't live in perpetual unhindered marital bliss. Kids. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, that was good, wasn't it, Timothy? That was good, wasn't it, Merritt? Nathan, y'all, yep. Elena, if you're listening over in Alabama today, yep, that's right. No, the reason it doesn't work out is because Natalie's a sinner. <laughs> There's a coordinating conjunction, and I'm a sinner. All right, let's think about this, folks. You husbands are sinners. You wives are sinners. When you put two sinners together in the context of marriage, what do you have? Well, I'm not sure about all this, but again, marriage can be puzzling at times. Let's just be honest. I want to address some difficulties. Pray for me as I think about that. It's not done yet. I'm just saying, I just feel it that there's enough. Well, it's marriage, right? It's family life, okay? And here's the deal. This is why. Because I know that we have husbands in this church who have an earnest desire to be the head of their family. But they've tried and they've been rejected. That's happened, Okay? And I know also that there are wives who desire to walk in the Spirit and be a Spirit-filled wife that pleases the Lord. But you know full well in your family it's a constant struggle. So we're going to talk about the difficulties. We're going to talk about what submission looks like, how it glorifies God. But here's what I want to ask you to do in the meantime. Are you guys ready? Gals, read this text in the presence of one another. Read this text in the presence of one another. Talk to one another about the difficulties that you perceive in your marital context. Talk to yourself about what the Word of God requires. Not what it suggests, what it requires. There's a connection between verse 26, that husbands wash their wives with the water of the word. The only way you are ever transformed by grace is through the word of God. Amen. You have to wash your wife with the water. How much more so? Word of God speak. Would you pour down like rain? Washing my eyes to see. Now, you don't need this just in order to wash your wife with the water of the word. That means if you don't know the word, there's no way to live it. It also means that you men need to ask God to wash you with the water of the word. There's no other way for me to say it. And when we have those conversations and we couple that under the umbrella of praying that God would help us have a vision of God glorifying marriages, I'm telling you folks, we cannot help but be transformed by grace. So... We need to move away from the all about me kind of thinking about marriage and allow your marriage to be a platform for the glory of God. Let's talk about how a husband can assist his wife in meeting these responsibilities. Let's talk about how a wife can encourage her husband. And instead of being an obstacle and a barrier, help that. Don't you love that person? You esteem them in love's sake. Why? Because you want them to be what God would have them to be. Now, is your marriage a witness of the hope that is in you? Let's go back to how we started. Our marriage is a witness to a lost world. Folks, 
I don't know if there's a greater platform in our world today than for a Christ-centered marriage to be a witness to the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why God created it. It's a picture of Christ's love for his church and how his bride submits to his leadership willingly. Amen. Let's pray. Great God, we are so thankful that you, Lord Jesus, set aside any desire to fulfill your own will. But you came in the volume of the book it is written of you to do the Father's will. You fulfilled the scripture. You established our atonement. Lord, you redeemed our hearts. And Lord, help us. Help the men and the women look beyond ourselves. I know it's lived out in context of marriage. I know it can be difficult and ugly. And Lord, I know there's a lot of heartbreak and heartache in this church. I get it, Lord. We know it. But God, it doesn't lessen what your word says. Lord, help us to line up with it. God, send a revival among our men and help us to be servant leaders like Jesus. Send a revival among our ladies so that they submit to godly leadership, servanthood of the husband. Lord God, help us. If there's someone here under the sound of my voice that's lost, may they hear the gospel call. The old song says, there's a call come ringing. Or the gospel song. Send the light. Send the light. There are souls in danger. Let them look above. Lord, only your word and your spirit can convict the heart of their condition. Would you draw them to you, Lord Jesus, this morning? And may they see Jesus as awesomely attractive. The only one that can save their soul. The only one that can take a dead heart and make it alive. Lord, to seek forgiveness from the only one that can give forgiveness. To repent of their sin and trust Jesus only for salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Who can satisfy my soul? Who can satisfy my soul like you? Who on earth could comfort me and love me like you do? Who could ever be more faithful, true? I will trust in you. Lord, I will trust in you, my God. Living water, living water, rain down your life on me. Cleansing me, refreshing me with life abundantly. River full of life, I'll go trust in you, Lord, I will trust in you, my God. There is a fountain, who is a king, victorious warrior, and Lord of everything, my rock, my shelter. Redeemer
part of the Guatemala team, would you come on up front? All right? Leaving on Thursday. Come on down here. I told Blake it's real hard to wear my Guatemala shirt and put a tie on it. So I figured I better not do that. All right. Can I borrow your microphone, David? George and Lisa, come down here. Well, to say these are the dearest friends in mine and Natalie's life would be an understatement. Uh, but I'd say, what, 10 years ago, there at Cropwell, God led us uh, to start that mission down in Guatemala. And this was a very instrumental couple in doing that. Uh, some of you might not realize this, but I don't think anybody is as close to Lazaro and Glenda as this couple. And so I say this to you. We, we've had some difficulties down there in Guatemala. And we'll give details about that. But we leave to go down there this time with a heavier heart than I've ever had. Not only for the Guatemala mission, but for, unfortunately, things get dirty sometimes. And difficulties. And the church body will know that. But listen, here's what I know. God is still at work in Guatemala. Amen. Souls need to be touched. Homes need to be built. And so we want you to pray for us. Miss Lisa, I'd love for you to pray if you feel okay. But this lady uh, is, has recently been diagnosed with, she's lost some pressure in her heart. And so, Lord willing, that's building back up. And I don't want to put Miss Lisa on the spot, but this is a godly lady. And I appreciate her prayer. So I'm going to ask both of them to pray, if they will, over our team uh, for Guatemala and our church. All right? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we bow our heads, but we bow our hearts mm. to a sovereign God who is good, regardless of this corrupt and fallen world. God, we pray that you would keep our eyes ever on you and never let us forget it is the glory of the gospel. It is the beauty of a servant God 
who stepped out of glory, went to a cross to save sinners, Father. And you are the same God today as you were the day you went on that cross. God, in victory, you defeated death and sin and all that the fall created. And God, as humble as we know how to beg of you, we need you. Even saving believers who love you, we struggle when we see the world around us, God. And God, this team goes down to a place, desperate poverty, hunger, grasping for what they think will make their life better. Grasping for money, grasping for food, all the things we know are necessary in life, God on this earth but God as we've heard proclaimed today in your beautiful gospel you are life and I pray that you would empower this team through the power of your Holy Spirit that they would raise high the banner of a risen king who is still on his throne and that they will point those poor souls to the power of the only transformation ever only transformation ever and it is by the washing of your blood the beautiful exchange of your glorious righteousness for our ugly ugly sin God I thank you for this church I thank you for this pastor who proclaims unashamedly your glorious word Raise up men who love your word and will fight to the death for your word. I ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we just uh, lift each and every one of these people going to be witnesses, the hands and feet of you. The answer's the same here in Missouri, Alabama, Guatemala. People need, need you as their Lord and Savior. Just uh, be with them and help them to glorify you in all that they do. In Jesus' name, we say these things. Amen. Yeah, just for a quick word, there are nine going from our church. There's two going from uh, High Street and then 14 going from First Baptist Salem where Joel pastors. And so there's a team of 26. So pray for us as we go through um, and get the group, team, group, group through everything. So pray for us this week. Amen. Let's finish with uh, the everlasting love of God. Oh, the everlasting love of God. It shall God.